HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Tabard Inn, new American cuisine in one of Washington, D.C.'s oldest hotels, located in DuPont Circle. For more information, visit tabardin.com. Join Heritage Radio Network on Monday, November 11th for a raucous feast to toast a decade of food radio. Our 10th anniversary Bacchanal is a rare gathering of your favorite chefs, mixologists, storytellers, thought leaders, and culinary masterminds. We'll salute the inductees of the newly minted HRN Hall of Fame, who embody our mission to further equity, sustainability, and deliciousness. Explore the beautiful Palm House and Yellow Magnolia Cafe, taste and imbibe to your heart's content, and bid on once-in-a-lifetime experiences and tasty gifts for any budget at our silent auction. Tickets available now at heritageradionetwork.org gala. So I don't actually think of myself as an activist. Um, I'm a journalist. And as a journalist, you know, I try very much to consider all sides of a question. This year, we've been massively inspired by all of the inductees to HRN's 10th anniversary Hall of Fame. So far on Meet and 3, we've recognized chefs, farmers, and writers. This week, we bring you four more profiles of changemakers and activists who have brought attention to critical scientific and social issues of today. We're starting this week with Marin McKenna, award-winning food and science writer. I'm Katie Mosman-Wadler, and this is Meet and Three. Meet and Three. Meet and Three. Meet and Three. One meat, three sides. Food, news, and storytelling. A square meal for your ears. Meet and Three. Through her journalism and books, Marin McKenna challenges our industrialized food system with meticulous research and thoughtful insights. She exposed the manipulative practices of the chicken industry in her book, Big Chicken, the incredible story of how antibiotics created modern agriculture and changed the way the world eats. This is really the story of how we came to give antibiotics routinely to most of the meat animals on the planet and how we discovered that was a terrible idea. In the early 20th century, supply for chicken outgrew the demand. And then the industry had to come up with ways to stimulate demand for chicken. So back in the 1920s, people figure out how to synthesize vitamins, which means that birds can now be kept over the winter in enclosed sheds, whereas before, once they were deprived of sunlight and of scratching around in the grass and in insects, they would get very sickly and die. Mm -hmm. 
After vitamins are added to the feed, then there's this discovery that if you give micro doses of antibiotics to chicken, they will, they will fatten up and grow more quickly. This didn't just change how chickens were raised, but who was doing the raising? The amazing thing about that history that, I, that is sort of embedded in what I just described that I think we don't think about is that when chickens were a backyard phenomenon, they were the province of women. And then innovation happens and um, technology happens and chickens that the chickens that were the province of women become chicken, the province of agricultural technology, which is primarily created by men. So there, there's a gendered aspect to the story, as well as a, a technology aspect and an animal welfare aspect. And all of these dimensions of this story are what drew me into trying to tell the story of chicken and the story of antibiotics, which are really the same story. Since Big Chicken was published in 2017, there has been a visible shift in the chicken industry. Marin's noticed some big changes in the past couple of years. Almost every company that produces chicken, chicken is ahead of the other proteins in this, has started an antibiotic-free line. They've really started to understand that this is what consumers want. And the tasks in front of us now are to convince cattle and pigs to go in the same direction and to convince the developing world that really needs its protein as its populations expand that they shouldn't make the same mistakes that we in the industrialized West made. Despite the progress that's been made, there is still much room for improvement in this sector of the food industry. Kat Johnson spoke to Marin about the biggest recent chicken news. So I really try not to be a spoil sport. When I saw the just crazy excitement around the Popeye sandwich, I was not thinking about the sandwich. I was thinking about the chickens. And I really wanted to know what that supply chain looked like. How did this this fast food chain handle getting that much more chicken that much more rapidly? What were the were there plants that were having to ramp up? Were they having to put second shifts on of workers? What was the workers' experience and what was the animals' experience? As the Popeye sandwich phenomenon illustrates, the history and the future of the meat industry in the United States is intrinsically linked to consumerism, labor practices, gender equity, health, and so much more. So there's a thing that I think we're still not thinking about enough when we when we analyze food systems. As much as we're trying to move them toward being more honest, more equitable, more accessible to people across a range of income classes, is that there's still a lot of exploitation down at the base of the pyramid. We don't think about how people who are marginalized in various ways are key to food production, whether that's people who are picking crops in the field or people who are eviscerating chickens on a processing line. You can hear more from Marin McKenna on episode 280 of A Taste of the Past. Find Big Chicken wherever books are sold and keep up with Marin's essential reporting in Wired, The Atlantic, and The New York Times. Our next HRN Hall of Famer also focuses his research on chickens. Raj Patel is an award-winning writer, academic, and activist who currently holds positions at the University of Texas, Austin, and the university currently known as Rhodes in South Africa. In a May 2018 appearance on What Doesn't Kill You, host Katie Kiefer asked Patel about his book, A History of the World in Seven Cheap Things, which explores seven resources that capitalism takes advantage of. During that interview, Patel talked about the production of the chicken nugget, a process that he believes exemplifies those seven things. The first cheap thing is what he calls cheap nature. 
Cheap Nature includes genetically engineered chickens and other manipulations of the planet's resources. What you're left with is that the modern broiler chicken is engineered so that its breasts are so large it can barely walk. Um, And we treat nature as a sort of uh, infinite resource, an infinite trash can, um, which is why, you know, by 2050, there'll be more plastic in the sea than fish. But cheap nature is the first thing. The second is cheap work because, you know, it takes workers to uh, turn chickens into nuggets. And as you say, uh, workers in the food system, the bodies are disposable. Yeah. And the third thing uh, is cheap care because who looks after workers' bodies after they've been chewed up by the food system? It's often uh, communities and usually it's women's work to to take care of the bodies of broken workers. Uh, And uh, one of the ways that that's made easier is the fourth thing, cheap food. Uh, because nuggets are part of this sort of constellation of cheap food that we, uh, certainly in the U.S. and around the world, um, get in order to be able to survive having low wages. Uh, cheap energy is required to keep, to keep us warm and to be able to you know, speed the production line. Cheap money is required so that um, you know, the, these industries have low interest loans. And the last thing is cheap lives. Uh, you know, the people on the chicken production line are predominantly women and people of color. Uh, yes. And that means that you know, uh, whether it's in food or globally, we're seeing a rise of forced work and globally, you know, 40 million people are modern-day slaves. So those seven cheap things come together in this chicken nugget. And um, it's, a, it's sort of a terrifying object uh, and one that we, you know, we're already uh, going through 50 billion bones, a, uh, chickens a year. Yeah. So th- there will be trillions of chicken bones laid in the, the fossil record as proof uh, that, we, that we humans were here. Patel later expanded on how labor is exploited in the United States. When chicken executives were uh, recognized that, you know, in order to, to really speed and make profitable a chicken factory, it helps to have a night shift. Unfortunately, workers are paid very little already, and it's already unpleasant work, and there weren't many takers for the night shift. And so some workers, uh, and this was exposed last year in a, in a brilliant bit of investigative reporting, but some workers uh, come from a specific place. It's a Christian treatment center for opioid addicts. What's happened is that uh, in order to avoid filling the prisons with people who are going through the opioid crisis, um, there are Christian rehabilitation centers that have been set up by chicken executives. And so the, the idea is that people are sent to these centers for a prolonged period of time so that they can pray during the day and work during the night for free and are subject to uh, none of the, the standard sort of employment constraints that workers right. elsewhere are. The next time you eat a chicken nugget, think about what it took to create it. Raj Patel's examples make it clear that there are still deep-seated problems with chicken production. Thankfully, Patel and others like him are pushing for a process that treats workers as more than disposable resources. To hear more of Katie Kiefer's interview with Raj Patel, check out episode 260 of What Doesn't Kill You. We'll be right back with more Meat and 3. This episode is brought to you by Tabard Inn. Tabard Inn, Washington, D.C.'s quintessential hotel, is located on a quiet, tree-lined street just five blocks from the White House. Vibrant yet unassuming, the Tabard is comprised of 40 sleeping rooms, each unique in character and design. Feast on an eclectic American cuisine in their acclaimed restaurant, or enjoy a cocktail and listen to live jazz in one of their cozy Victorian seating areas. Mingle with travelers from around the world who find the Tabard the only place to stay when taking their travels to Washington. 
For more information, visit tabardin.com. Welcome back to Meet and Three. For our final two segments, we'll hear from Hall of Famers who are working to make a difference in the communities they care about. Next is Isanette Batista, activist and founder of the food service cooperative Woke Foods. Using affordable ingredients and Afro-Caribbean flavors to make hearty vegan dishes, Isanet's co-op has turned many a skeptic on to plant-based food. The co-op caters events, teaches cooking classes, and holds workshops for activists. In December of 2018, Isanet sat down with Leah Kurtz on an episode of Food Without Borders to discuss how she's working to break down the class barriers to healthy eating. Here's Leah. I think activism obviously is incredibly important but it isn't always discussed the the shock first of all that learning that kind of stuff has on your whole body but also that kind of work is really emotionally exhausting that's essentially how both foods got started i started thinking through all all those things that you mentioned and as i'm doing my organizing i also noticed that my friends are not really nourishing themselves like they're going hours and hours like on a protest or organizing or doing like all the work and labor and like really not being able to even get a, like a good job that pays them well enough to afford good food having a really hard time getting food stamps like all these things at the time I was on food stamps too and so I started I was like oh I can like meal plan for people so that's sort of like how Woke Foods get started yeah and factoring in you know time efficiency and like you Figuring out those like trade-offs of having time to cook something from scratch versus opening up a can and, and finding avenues for people to fit their lifestyle. I'm sure that's like a lot of, is that something you acknowledge in your classes that you teach and kind of giving people options based on their lifestyle and based on like their economic constraints? Yeah, so in my, in my classes, I usually do the food shopping wherever the class is being held at. So, like, this is what's in this area. That's so wise. Yeah. (laughs) I think I learned that from working. Like, there was a point where I was, like, teaching food justice and and cooking classes in the Bronx. And I remember, like, I had to do the food shopping near the school. And it was, like, sometimes didn't have the things that I, the recipe called for. So I had to do some swapping. Um, So, yeah, so I do mention that, like, if you're from this area, I did this shopping in this place. And this is what was available. And then also... Yeah, I mean, I do talk a lot about, like, the connection between, like, lack of access to food and lack of, like, time to eat food because I know that when I go back to the Dominican Republic, my aunt and my uncle, they always come home during around 12 o'clock to eat with my cousins and I. And I find that, like, so amazing. And they have, like, time to take a nap and then they go back to work. And that's not something that exists here. So... To see like my mom there's and no my siesta aunt. here. No, there's no siesta here. And to so see like my my mom and I my and my aunt work like really odd hours that never really allowed them. I never had like had a sit down with my mom and my aunt in the dinner table to like eat together. Mm. That was only happening like maybe during the holidays. Mm. Um, and so that's the reality for a lot of people. Like the the society and like sort of the work working conditions don't allow us to like sit down and eat with each other. The health food movement is heavily associated with the white and wealthy, but Isanet Batista is working to change that. Today, Woke Foods continues to educate and empower the public about food justice, teaching people that healthy food can be affordable, nutritious, and delicious. 
To hear more about Isanet Batista's food justice journey, listen to episode 51 of Food Without Borders. For our last segment, we celebrate the work of Lou Bank, who turned his love for agave spirits into the nonprofit organization Sacred, which works to revitalize rural Mexican communities. Here he is on HRN on tour describing how it all came to be. It wasn't until I went to Oaxaca and I met the producers that it became something different. Seeing how they make it, why they make it the way they make it, using methods that are 150 years old or more, and and how they came about really for me was life-changing. And if I found out uh, tomorrow that I am now also agave intolerant, it would not stop me from doing what I'm doing. The, for me, the impact goes beyond just the fact that these are amazingly delicious spirits. It's an impact on the communities that are making the spirits. There is probably nothing like this in the world where instead of evolving along a pattern of, uh, of, of creating efficiencies in what you're making, they've evolved their senses. They've evolved their sense of touch and smell and taste, their sense of listening and even and seeing, so that instead of having these thermometers and dials and knobs telling them your, your, your ferment is ready now, your sugars are dissipated, it's time to distill, they do it by smelling it or they do it by tasting it. It's almost all multi-generation. So if you think about the 10-year-old child, the 12-year-old child who's starting to help his father uh, to uh, ferment and distill agave spirits. That child is starting from the point where the father is, you know, when he's, uh, let's say, 35, mm-hmm. right? So, so he's starting from that base point, and his, and his father started from that same base point to his father. So you're literally building on the wisdom and the development of the senses. When Lou began visiting Oaxaca on a regular basis and organizing agave spirits tastings back home in the States, he decided he needed to do something to help protect and promote the communities that produce these artisanal spirits. So eventually I thought, I I need to formalize this, because there's Dark Matter Coffee is this amazing artisanal roaster in Chicago. And those guys love agave spirits. And I took them down to Oaxaca, and so they wanted to do a project uh, that raised money for these things. But... They had to have a certified 501c3 not-for-profit to do it. And I thought, okay, I guess now is the time that I turned this into a not-for-profit. So I thought, sacred, saving agave for culture, recreation, education, and development. So that's, that's what I do. And my mission is to improve quality of life in rural Mexico. Uh, and that's absolutely what I'm trying to do by building libraries, replanting agave, um, building uh, greenhouses to facilitate the replanting of agave, and also helping to manage water reservoirs um, in rural Oaxaca, in, in one town in particular where literally the water reservoir that they developed uh, has saved them from the, uh, the negative effects of drought. Lou's continued dedication to improving the quality of life in Oaxaca, as well as protecting the future of these artisanal distilleries, has earned him his rightful spot in the HRN Hall of Fame. You can hear these full interviews with Lou on episode 67 of HRN On Tour and episode 43 of HRN Happy Hour. To learn more about Sacred, visit sacredagave.org and follow him on all social media outlets at sacred underscore agave. That's our show. The incredible efforts of our HRN Hall of Famers have shaped the food world. 
Their stories remind us of the impact that activism and education can have, not just on our own community, but on communities around the world. Next week, we'll learn about the cultural exchange of food in our episode on diasporas. Special thanks this week to Jessica Kreinchich, Ruby Walsh, Linda Palaccio of A Taste of the Past, Katie Kiefer of What Doesn't Kill You, and Leah Kurtz of Food Without Borders. Meet and Three is produced by Liza Hamm, Hannah Forden, Kat Johnson, and me, Katie Mosman-Wadler, with lead production this week by Kevin Chang-Barnum. Our audio engineer is Matt Patterson. Our theme song was composed by Breakmaster Cylinder. This program is supported in part by public funds from the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs in partnership with the City Council. Meet and Three is powered by Simplecast. Meet and Three is a production of Heritage Radio Network, the world's pioneer food radio station. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org and follow us at heritage underscore radio. And please stay in touch. Whether you have a story idea or would just like to say hey, write us at ideas at meetand3.nyc. That's all spelled out.